0: Hi, this is Landon.
1: And it's Monique.
0: And we are not in the Kitchen of Knowledge today. No, we're
1: not. We're in Dr. C's kitchen, or Office of Knowledge, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So Andrew was kind enough to have um, come to our podcast a couple of times, or we actually came to him. Yes. Always coming to him. Yeah. Um, And And he
0: describes himself as your friendly neighborhood transfusion medicine specialist. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And he's got a really exciting website, and I think we might just turn it over to him, and if he doesn't mind, we'll probably pepper this uh, conversation with a lot of questions, but we're going to let him start. and we're going
0: to talk today mostly about reversal of anticoagulants and that kind of thing, but... uh, also, we're going to start with talking about this website. Yeah. Is it a Canadian thing,
2: or you tell us about it. Yeah, for sure. So I guess just to introduce myself, uh, I'm Andrew C. I'm the regional medical leader for transfusion medicine at Vancouver Coastal. Uh, I'm tr- previously trained as a hematologist, but now kind of work uh, purely in the lab as a hematopathologist. Uh, so uh, what i really like to talk a little bit about today, and kind of we can center our conversation around it, is uh, a website that myself and a few other collaborators uh, throughout Canada, and actually even throughout the United States, uh, have been working on called uh, treatthebleed.org. Full disclosure, it is being sponsored by Octopharma Canada, who basically makes some of the reversal products, but uh, the content is purely expert-driven. We have full editorial control over our content. Uh, So the original idea for this website was, could we essentially have a nice... um, uh, resource for frontline physicians and okay. caregivers on how to treat the bleed. And uh, just because, you know, uh, we wanted to serve a one-stop shop that was simple uh, mm-hmm. and practical. And the what we decided to kind of focus on first was really around warfarin reversal, uh, for which we sort of have a top 10 questions of warfarin reversal. And then we also uh, are working on DOAC reversal, or the direct oral anticoagulants, mm-hmm. the reversal of those drugs. And uh, some other modules that are being worked on is something around massive hemorrhage protocols in general, which we think will probably very much follow what Ontario has done. They've actually regionalized their massive hemorrhage protocol. That is, they've tried to come up with a provincial model for their massive hemorrhage protocols. And then uh, some specific uh, kind of (laughs) bleeding situations, such as um, menorrhagia, GI bleeding, peripartum hemorrhage, these types of things where again there we find that frontline physicians, you know, generally uh, it would be nice for them to have a single resource to go to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Excellent. And that's so that's treatthebleed.org. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And we'll mention that again at the end.
1: Yeah. yeah. I like the thought that you, it's simple and practical because I think that a lot of us who are working at the bedside sometimes it's a bit overwhelming especially with the advent of all sorts of new medications and whatnot yeah and, yeah and I'm sure Landon will talk about how old I am well I was and, I know, was
0: actually going to claim that when <laughs> I started we had heparin yes yeah.
1: that was it and right? heparin Yes. and Coumadin yes yeah. exactly that and was now, about it. exactly and now it's it's it, the field has expanded um, which has certainly helped with some of the bleeding issues but I think we all are a bit challenged when it comes to, well,
2: what's the right thing to do? Yeah. Well, it's so mm-hmm. much more complex nowadays, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I respect the fact that not everybody keeps on top of this literature. And yeah. that's kind of the point where people specialize in these types of things, right? Everybody kind of brings something else to the table for the team. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I, I actually think, again, this is meant to be a simple resource. I always laugh because uh, in the hematology world, when you read around these things, mm-hmm. uh, every the first thing that always gets thrown up is like a coagulation cascade. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is that really all that important to your frontline? physician probably not so you know a lot of our conversations around creating this website were around like if I was an emerge physician and I really just needed to know what I need to know to treat a bleed this is where I would go to right exactly. don't treat me don't tell me why it's happening right now it's happening
0: just tell me what to do about it 100 yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: exactly right because there's lots of great resources out there that cover the same stuff but again in a little bit more detail and Ours, i'll go read that later exactly right, right
1: let's just save a life, let's right, save now, life right now stop yeah. the bleed and then we'll talk about it afterwards for sure so andrew did you want to talk about heparin first or doax or how do you want to
2: well, yeah, so um, I, I can probably go over a little bit around, so just very briefly, maybe we can talk about some of uh, the traditional yeah. anticoagulants and then some of the newer anticoagulants out there. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, so for traditional things, I won't go into heparin all that much, only to say that uh, you know nowadays people are using low molecular weight heparin instead mm-hmm. of unfractionated, and really the reversal strategy around this is usually using protamine. Uh, so protamine typically is more meant for unfractionated heparin, but you can use it in this situation for low molecular weight heparin as well. Uh, but generally, it's just thought not to be as effective. Okay. So that essentially covers that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and,
0: and, and, you know, if, if what I was told in nursing school was correct, heparin, unfractionated heparin has a very short half, and half life, five. and correct. so really just turning it off. Yes. By the time you get a lot of this other stuff, the heparin's already starting to really reverse itself. For sure. So,
2: and I guess the added point too, also, is that with protamine, you can also probably the big risk associated with that is around um, uh, hypersensitivity reactions. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, probably the more, uh, the most significant of the, uh, I guess, older or traditional anticoagulants is, is warfarin, right, right? Mm-hmm. or coumadin. And uh, largely its indications have been around sort of prevention of atrial fibrillation, like the strokes that are related to it, or the thromboembolic strokes, and around sort of treatment of, uh, for example, DVTs, uh, pulmonary embolisms, and so forth. So really the the big kind of takeaways for treating a life-threatening bleed on warfarin are kind of threefold. One, I would probably say is, first of all, supportive care. Right. Uh, you would stop the anticoagulant and any other things that would make your patient bleed, like antiplatelets. Mm-hmm. And then your blood work around the supportive care really is around sort of your CBC, because you want right. to figure out what their hemoglobin is, uh, and their platelet count, in case you got to transfuse. Your coagulation testing, your INR and your PTT. And oftentimes missed in a bleeding patient is your fibrinogen. A group and screen uh, okay. because that gives you access to a lot of blood other than group O blood if your patient is bleeding heavily and then obviously concerning blood transfusion as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second sort of tenant is around reversing the warfarin. Right. So the, I sort of separate this into sort of your fast reversal, what do I do now and then also what do I need to give alongside it as a true mm-hmm. antidote that will keep the warfarin off. Right. so when people ask me what the true antidote to warfarin is it's actually vitamin k uh, so vitamin k is uh what you would give because if you think about the action of warfarin it basically stops your vitamin k dependent clotting factors from uh being formed so vi- giving vitamin k reverses that right now uh, in terms of how much you should give and what route yeah. um the what i always tell clinicians is if you have a Patient with a life-threatening bleed, right. it should always be IV, right? And it should always be. Uh, I think my opinion is ten milligrams. Yeah. Uh, some people will say five. I definitely do not advocate anything lower than that. Right. The reason why is because, uh, first of all, the argument I always get is. Uh, if we start with a lower dose or a PO dose, maybe we can get the patient back on an anticoagulant a little bit faster. And I would say, first of all, that's not your first priority. Your first priority is to save the patient. Right. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, The the second thing I would probably say is that people, uh, if you look at the literature, there's actually not a lot of good evidence for this so-called idea of uh, warfarin resistance after you put them on, after you try to reverse their warfarin that way. And then finally, the last part is that uh, when you reverse somebody's warfarin, mm-hmm. uh, you do bring them back to their prothrombotic state, but an extra day or two or you know, uh, doesn't really contribute to their overall risk when, again, your priority at that point is to save the patient.
1: Right. So would you ever give vitamin K without any kind of blood work? I- I'm asking a question that I probably know the answer yeah. to. If you have somebody who has a catastrophic uh, cerebral bleed, Um, and they're on warfarin, Warfarin. Um, I would assume that you couldn't really, I mean, it's good to get the blood work, but at that point, you're not gonna wait for the blood
2: work to give the vitamin K. 100%, So, and I think this especially, as we'll get into later, this applies to the uh, direct oral anticoagulants. So I think one of the big mistakes people make is they wait until the blood work before they Mm -hmm. act, and really, if you have the history, you have the presentation, um, you need to act, uh, because time is money in these cases, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the second piece around vitamin K, again, the true antidote, 10 milligrams, IV, uh, the second piece of it is what quickly reverses your warfarin. Yeah. And there you have something called prothrombin complex concentrates. Okay. Um, and uh, what those are is sort of a, a combination of all those vitamin K-dependent factors, right? So that's two, seven, nine, and 10. Right. And uh, typically that's the four-factor PCCs that are used in Canada. Generally, the way you dose it is different depending on your jurisdiction, so I would always recommend everybody check what they do in their own hospital. Mm -hmm. But in general, either is a combination of what the INR is, Mm -hmm. what your weight is, and then also finally um, you need to check whether or not the patient has any sort of allergies to heparin. That seems counterintuitive, but yeah, I, say, yeah. <laughs> I know, not, not what you're expecting, I know. Yeah. Um, uh, it's because PCCs actually contain a little bit of heparin. So in very rare cases, you may have heard this phenomenon called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Yes. That's basically a really bad uh, reaction that you can get to heparin where that causes blood clotting and also a huge drop in your platelet count. If you've had a history of that, uh, that's where one of these rare cases that you may not use PCCs for reversal. So what the dose is, other than what your institution recommends, another great place to look is the National Advisory Council for Blood and Blood Products. Uh, They provide uh, guidance recommendations. Um, That's nacblood.ca. That's N-A-C-B-L-O-O-D.ca. They also provide good dosing recommendations. If you don't know the weight or the INR, in general, uh, if you need to act, a general good uh, guidance is 2,000 international units as a flat dose. To start. And then when you get the INR, you can tweak based off of that, but generally that's a good place to start. That generally will reverse people's INR. Just a quick piece around reversing warfarin frozen plasma is not appropriate. Okay. Uh, so again, you have a specific antidote, a uh, fast acting antidote for this. Plasma it replaces all the factors. Realistically, yeah. you just need to replace the ones that you're missing. Right. And if you compare PCCs and frozen plasma head to head, there's, uh, PCCs win out in terms of effectiveness by far in terms of lowering the INR, decreasing bleeding, and I believe there was even a study that suggested uh, mortality benefit. Really? Yeah. And the last piece, uh, so uh, you, I would say frozen plasma is not appropriate. The only case where it is potentially appropriate is if you have that heparin-induced thrombocytopenia okay. case. But yeah. that's going to be very rare. And... Yeah, so I would I would say no good evidence for frozen plasma in
0: this setting. So a question. just yeah. A lot of our listeners are rural. Um, yeah. And very familiar with PCC in the large hospital context here. Yeah. Is that one of those things that if you have a blood bank at your hospital, PCC would definitely be one of the things that is always there? Or is this something that's only at larger hospitals? And if so, if you have nothing but... Plasma? Would you still want to use plasma, or is that just a don't even go there? If you don't have PCC, just work on getting them to a place that does. Yeah,
2: uh, great question. First of all, because um, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a uh, uh, so to tell you kind of what happens with a blood bank, because not not everybody really knows. So uh, I can't speak for all jurisdictions, but most jurisdictions I've worked in, all the small hospitals have PCCs. Okay. The interesting thing why is um, PCCs are kept as a lyophilized powder that you can okay. store. They're not a liquid product. Oh, so it
0: comes as liquid, but that's something they've reconstituted. Yeah, so you reconstitute. Exactly, right?
2: so. Uh, the, the, so essentially, it's much easier to store in a blood bank also because you don't have to restore it in a freezer. Right. So believe it or not, in the vast majority of centers, it's much harder to get plasma than it is to get PCCs. Right. Oh. So I would say... many can I's look on our face, we're like, <laughs> our combined 30 what, or 60 whatever
0: years yeah. of experience, we're like, I never knew yeah,
1: that. I don't think I did. It just
0: comes this in a bag amazing. of liquid.
2: I assumed it, <laughs> it came it just like out, out of just the person. I know, right. it's
1: like, What? <laughs> <laughs> a little incredulous. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the uh, the interesting, uh, so as I said, you know, in most hospitals you will find PCCs even more frequently than you will find plasma. So right. speaking for our health authority, we serve uh, out into like the Bella Bellas, Bella Coolas. They have PCCs. Okay. I mean, that okay. should give you a clue. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That is, that's very helpful, actually. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Uh, So that's (laughs) reversing the warfarin the last piece I would say is you actually need some sort of definitive intervention to stop the bleed Yeah, so one of my old mentors has uh, kind of put out this uh, idea that you know The horse has kind of left the barn already right so in a way you can reverse an anticoagulant and this goes for all anticoagulants in my opinion you can reverse the effect of a drug but the bleed is happening. They're still bleeding. They're still bleeding. You yeah. gotta fix the bleed. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the two great ways of doing this is one, you need to get a consult with uh, someone who will do a de- definitive intervention. Right. So, that's either surgery, interventional radiology, gastroenterology, so forth, right? Right. Uh, and, and the argument, not the argument, the discussion I always have, with clinicians as well you've reversed it why do a procedure but as I said even if you look at the uh, randomized control trials of the DOAX and the way they reversed them um, it still takes hours uh, like almost 10 hours on average to stop the bleed on right. on its own right so again in that meantime you have to do something in between to right. actually definitively stop the bleed
1: yeah I this is probably really unfair because we have to pull up like numbers, um, but when when we talk about heparin and we talk about bleeding risks, mm-hmm. where are the where are the largest risks? I'm assuming that the the minor bleeds are probably the things that you might see the most, like the bleeding gums mm-hmm. or maybe something that bleeds more often than anything else. So when we're talking about these big bleeds, we're talking about like cerebral hemorrhage or GI bleeding, that we're really talking about here. Yeah, right?
2: so a yeah. great question. So, how do you risk stratify a bleed, yeah. right? Um, that's a
1: better way of putting it. Right? So, <laughs> that's, Thank the, you, that's, Andrew. The smart
2: that's a way smart of person it. way of saying
1: it.
2: <laughs> you, go, you go through medical school just to learn big words. Yeah, it's risk amazing.
1: stratification. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say.
2: And that's a good way of framing this conversation. So, yeah. you know, what I've just described here is for what I call life threatening bleeds. Right. So, I think intracranial hemorrhage fits within that group. And I would say uh, bleeds in which you are transfusing a couple of Units within the first hour, right. right? Okay, that can be big GI bleeds, but traumatic bleeds, even bad cases of like menorrhagia right? Uh, um, you know, like peripartum bleeds. Yeah, actually, peripartum hemorrhage is actually one of the most common uh, oh. causes of uh, its mortality rate is actually like still quite high. Uh, it's about one wow. in one hundred fifty, if I recall. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, those are the types of bleeds I would say life-threatening. Yeah. You gotta do everything just to save the patient, right? Right. Stuff that tends to be sort of in the moderate category, you know, your subacute GI bleeds, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. in that area where you can probably just transfuse them. I think it's a reasonable idea to reverse the anticoagulant in these cases, right? Right. Uh, but you don't necessarily need to, let's say, activate a massive hemorrhage protocol, right? Right. And then your minor bleeds are kind of things like slow continued menorrhagia. Epistaxis, right, right? things like that. Uh, Ecchymosis, for example. Yeah. Uh, So what the discussion I have around here is really around that life-threatening sort of category, right? The last part I'll kind of cover as around stopping the bleed is a great adjunct to use is tranexamic acid. Yeah. Uh, so. I knew it was. I I knew that one, to <laughs> uh, Me too. I was going to ask the I question. Knew it was I thought, be Can DxA? we just DXA? <laughs> it's like the answer to everything, you know, yeah. like Lucas. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's uh, to be fair, tranexamic acid has never been studied in the context of an of anticoagulant associated bleeds. Mm-hmm. But I think it's well within the standard of practice that if you have a bleed on an anticoagulant, tranexamic acid is very reasonable and it won't right. cause harm. Yeah. Like we, yeah, we
0: pretty well know it won't cause harm.
1: Correct. And
2: we're not sure what the benefit is. Because you're
1: saying it's a two prong thing. You need yeah. to kind of reverse the anticoagulant, but you also have to stop the bleeding. Correct. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. Uh,
2: so again, I think it's a great adjunct in this case. Um, I th- don't recall. I think in my last talk, I, I talked yeah. a little bit about trying stomach yes, acid. Yes, you so did. into yeah. like Too many details, but. Big thing is that uh, get into two grams any way you can. Uh, So if you can get it through infusion, that's great. If not, the bolus is perfectly reasonable, in my opinion. Yes,
1: exactly. Just give it is basically what we want to say. Essentially. Yeah. 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 somebody's bleeding, give it. That makes sense to me. Can I don't know if this is the right time to ask you, because you were talking about an INR-PTT. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know about any of our listeners, but I often get confused when we're asking, you know, what am I looking at? Why am I looking at INR-PTT? Um, what about PT, you know? Yeah. And, and fibrinogen, you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of blood test when I'm ordering blood tests, and somebody's on heparin or somebody's on a DOAC, what should I be looking at?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, I would probably say, so let's cover what uh, PT-INR and PTT and fibrinogen are yeah. first, right? So um, first of all, PT and INR are technically the same thing, thing. right? Yeah. So uh, P, the INR is so just something called the internationalized norm, international normalized ratio, ratio. Yeah. and uh, it's the idea that uh, essentially it's your PT adjusted uh, to okay. essentially uh, different regions out there. and. Keep in mind that PT and well, really INR was really only developed to monitor warfarin. Yeah. Uh, but by extension, it tells you a little bit about what's called the e- extrinsic pathway of the coagulation cascade. Right. So you have extrinsic and intrinsic, right? Yeah. So the classic textbook teaching is your extrinsic pathway gets tested by your PT and INR. Right. But that's classically testing for warfarin. Yes. Right? Okay. In PTT, Interestingly enough, it was only, again, never developed as a bleeding test. It was developed to um, assess hemophilia patients, essentially. Okay. And what that does is it assesses your intrinsic pathway. So your intrinsic pathway includes factors A to 9, which would uh, correspond to hemophilia A and hemophilia B if you were missing that. Right. Right. Uh, So um, good guides to kind of give you a bleeding assessment, but I would say not the end-all, be-all. In fact, a lot of... um, the recommendation for most hematologists, frankly, is a bleeding history is a much more useful tool mm-hmm. than the tests are. I see. Uh, just because the tests, again, are really not all that great for these kind of specific scenarios. Okay. Fibrinogen is, uh, so fibrinogen, again, if you look at that clot in Cascade, it's essentially one of the last steps, right? right. So fibrinogen gets converted to fibrin to basically form sort of the glue of the clot, right? right? And so if you don't have fibrinogen, can't make the clot. And the uh, interesting part about bleeding patients, more so in the trauma literature, you know, not necessarily anticoagulant-related bleeds, is your fibrinogen is probably one of the first things to drop. Mm. Uh, so what I find oftentimes is that fibrinogen is not checked. So Because right. if, uh, if you check it and it's low, it's something you can treat, Right. right. Uh, in general, I would say these three tests are ordered across the board give you a general sense of the patient's coagulation status. Okay. If you have an increase in your INR and PTT, you can say this is more of a, a global issue. Okay. Uh, whereas if it's just INR and just PTT, it's probably a little bit more isolated. Okay. Um, a great resource to go to. Um, I think, first of all, we do discuss this a little bit in Treat the Bleed. Yeah. Uh, but another great resource out there is um, uh, Bloody Easy. Oh, so yeah. Bloody Easy, uh, actually, there's a there's a transfusion sec, uh, version and there's a coagulation version. Yeah. The coagulation okay. version actually has a great differential diagnosis of yeah. what makes an uh, increased INR PT versus like an increased PTT and when both are increased. Right.
1: And it's an app too, right? Bloody Easy? Yes, is it, it is. Yes, yes that's It's right. an app yeah. that you can download on your phone. I think I have it. Because I seem to be a bit nerdy. Yeah. A little bit. I have it on the phone.
0: <laughs> Gotta own it. I love
1: it. <laughs> I have it. No comment. Okay. I'm surprised there's no comment coming I know. from the Landon... Yeah, it's because we'll be my there.
0: brain is, like, processing all of this. I know. You always know on a podcast when I know nothing about
2: the topic because <laughs> I don't say anything.
1: So now we're going to move on to the DOAX, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, so but before I go on to the DOAX, I sure. just want to uh, just uh, shoot down one myth, uh, one more myth sure. when it comes to warfarin reversal. So people often ask me, first of all, PCCs versus plasma. Uh, shouldn't I use plasma because it's cheaper? Not necessarily the case. So, and okay. also, you should just be using the best treatment for the yeah. patient, yeah, period. Yeah, I was gonna say. So, right? uh, yeah. And the second question I often get is PCCs might have some risk of producing blood clots or thrombosis. Right. Uh, so, isn't it better to use frozen plasma? And uh, actually, all the literature out there, and uh, what we call uh, meta analyses, where they combine yeah. a whole bunch of different studies, essentially show that their risk is completely equal. So, okay. you're, if by giving, again, by giving frozen plasma instead of PCCs to reverse warfarin, you're giving an inferior treatment. That doesn't correct it as well, yeah. leads to higher mortality, yeah. and doesn't have any difference in terms of the drawbacks of thrombosis. Hmm. And that thrombosis risk—it depends on what literature you read. Yeah. It goes anywhere from about like one point four to I'd say about four percent. I generally quote less than five percent.
1: Okay. Yeah. My gosh. Excellent. I know.
2: This is so great.
1: I know. It's great when we're (laughs) learning as well. I know.
0: (laughs) That's why we interview people.
1: I know, so that Landon and I can sound smart.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay. So
1: moving on to Doax. Doax, yeah. yeah. So
0: uh, can Mm I just start with, this is where, again, this is where the stupid me comes out. This is the same as the Noax, right?
2: Yes. yes. Oh, I was, about, I was totally going to address that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cuz I'm like, what are these Doax we're talking about because well, I Well, we
1: did do a Do you, a, you remember we did a, we podcast, did a podcast on Doax versus Noax? No, NOACs. we did the Noax,
0: not the Doax.
1: No, we did talk about it in oh, the wow. podcast Okay,
0: well, it that doesn't matter. Okay. Andrew's going to make a smirk. So. <laughs>
2: Whatever. It's like, I don't remember what I had for dinner yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, so first of all, you know, we just covered, again, we just covered the more older traditional anticoagulants, mm-hmm. heparin, warfarin. Right. right. Now, moving to the DOACs, um, yeah. probably they come in largely two flavors. Right. Uh, one is the uh, direct thrombin inhibitors. So, well, most well-known one is dabigatran. Yeah. Okay. And then the other one is... Uh, the anti-10A inhibitors, yeah. which is uh, apixaban, rivaroxaban, adoxaban. those are the most common ones. Right. So, uh, as their namesake, the uh, big tran inhibits thrombin, which yeah. you need to produce a blood clot, and factor 10A is probably one of the is one of the more important uh, factors in terms of the common clotting pathway. Yeah. So again, by inhibiting that, you stop blood clots from forming. Exactly. Uh, so let's cover uh, the bigger trend first because mm-hmm. it's probably a little bit easier so first of all just uh, again similar approaches to warfarin in kind of spirit right? right you're the you're still giving supportive care Right. you're still trying to reverse where you can and then definitive interventions to stop the bleed right. Okay. in terms of the supportive care for testing right. uh, this is where things get a little bit more dicey because as you probably know one of the kind of benefits of having a uh, um, uh, the direct or anticoagulants is that um, you don't need to monitor them yes. a, to a certain degree, right? Yeah.
1: You don't need to have regular blood work. Correct,
2: yeah. exactly. So where the bigotran is, is in terms of your traditional testing, mm-hmm. um, your PTINR is not useful whatsoever.
1: Yeah.
2: Your APTT or your PTT, if it's prolonged, it generally tells you that the drug is present. But if it's normal, it doesn't rule it out. Okay. Yeah. To really rule out the, uh, the drug, you really need to do something called uh, dilute thrombin time or even a thrombin time. Uh, the dilute thrombin time is a much better test and thrombin time uh, generally too sensitive. Uh, so this is a little bit more of a specialized test. If your center has it, this is probably where you should go right away. Okay. Okay? So if your dilute thrombin time is prolonged, tells you the drug is present. Mm-hmm. If it's normal, generally tells you that the drug is absent. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and I guess I should back up to your question around DOAX, NOAX, and all that stuff. Yeah. They These different oral anticoagulants have had a whole bunch of names, and they came on the scene largely to kind of replace warfarin and the kind of similar indications for atrial fibrillation, for mm-hmm. treatment of uh, VTE, you mm-hmm. know, like DVTs, PEs. Yeah. And now also being used a lot in prophylaxis post surgery. Right? Yes. Previously, they were called the NOACs, or the new oral anticoagulants, but sooner or later they stopped They're being not new. new, right? <laughs> <laughs> like exactly. most things. Yeah. Uh, and then also, once upon a time, they were also called target specific oral anticoagulants or soax right?
1: <laughs> oh my. Without face.
2: getting into too much, uh, uh, it eventually landed on DOACs, which is a direct oral anticoagulant. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually the terminology that's commonly used now. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. told seriously I am that updated. Yeah, <laughs> I'm told seriously this came out of a Twitter poll. Okay.
1: <laughs> wow. I think okay. so. I can anyway. See that. Yeah. yeah. could too. In today's <laughs> world. Well. Let's just decide on one name. Very please. millennial. Yeah. Yeah. Very millennial. <laughs> very. very millennial. We're just gonna do a
2: Twitter poll. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I just finished discussing the, the discussion around testing for a, a direct thrombin inhibitor like dabigatran. Mm-hmm. So the dabigatran actually is, uh, is nice and easy from the perspective of we actually have a specific antidote that's available throughout Canada. And you get this through pharmacy, not through blood bank, since it's a specific um, antibody that essentially binds the drug to stop it from working.
1: Okay.
2: Uh, it's called Id- idiracizumab.
1: Oh, yeah. Say that three times
2: fast. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Some people may know it as Praxbind. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and essentially, you give it in uh, uh, bolus, works very quickly, works very well. And uh, once the effects start to wear off, I believe at 24 hours, mm-hmm. um, they you can give a second dose to, uh, and it'll still continued to have the same efficacy after the second dose. Right. Okay. So, and that that was um, well proven by something called the reverse AD study. Uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, essentially showed that you had a good anticoagulant reversal effect in both bleeding patients and also patients that needed urgent procedures. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So, Interesting. Once upon a time we used to give APCCs for it, but again, because we have a specific antidote now, you don't yeah. need to do no that. Point. Right. Other adjuncts you can consider in the Bigotran is, the Bigotran is probably one of the few drugs that will work, uh, that will get sucked up by uh, activated charcoal. So I oh. think, um, I, always, I always If forget. it's still in the stomach. 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 Yes. Yes, that's right. So that would be more for the overdose type. Correct. Approach, right. Yeah. And I believe typically you can give it within, I think, one to three hours of ingestion. Yeah. Okay. Don't yeah. quote me on that one. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, so the other uh, adjunct people sometimes consider is hemodialysis. Right. So hemodialysis, okay. the membrane, uh, it will allow the bigotran to go through. Okay. The problem with dialysis is... Um, it captures what's, I guess, in the bloodstream, but not necessarily what's outside the bloodstream. So right. what typically happens is you get rebound effect. So um. the hemodialysis removes the drug, and then all the drug that's not available in the bloodstream or yeah. the volume of distribution uh, eventually gets it's back into, into the bloodstream. The bloodstream. Right. So you just get a rebound effect. So okay. overall, not that useful of a strategy. Okay. Okay. And again, now you have a specific antidote. Factor 10 A inhibitors are a little bit um, more controversial. So there is a specific antidote for this. It's been well-studied. It's called Andexanet Alpha, okay? Um, and again, yeah, say that three times. Say <laughs> that three times. Better <laughs> than I do, yeah. uh, The, so Andexanet Alpha was studied in something called the Annexit trials, or A-N-N-E-X-A. Uh, those were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Again, similarly showing that um, they have good efficacy in terms of reversing the drug.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, my understanding is that it's approved in the United States by the FDA. Don't believe it's approved in Health Canada yet, okay. but either way, it's not widely available throughout Canada. And until that specific antidote comes, the general recommendation is to give PCCs. Again, that same antidote you would give for warfarin. Okay. The, previously, from uh, or previously there were recommendations to say that uh, you should be giving 25 to 50 international units per kilogram. Um, and that was largely based off of either in vitro studies or healthy volunteer studies. Okay. Um, uh, where people have tended generally towards the higher end of that dosing. And most of the time, oh, you can give a max dose of PCCs at 3,000 international units depending what brand you're using. Nowadays, Uh, There's been two good prospective cohort studies in bleeding patients using PCCs for reversal or to uh, try to, uh, you know, reduce the drug effect of the uh, anti-10A inhibitor. And generally the results are pretty good. Um, Overall, probably about two-thirds of patients have good hemostasis after use of PCCs, um, consistent between these two studies. And uh, so people in those studies generally use 25 international units per kilogram, the lower end of that dosing. And I, I, my personal belief that this, this dosing is correct,
1: okay.
2: uh, since it's actually based on bleeding patients. Right. But in many cases, you don't have a weight, uh, right. so my general recommendation you mean
0: everyone <laughs> I know, unconscious I in a trauma bay is not seventy <laughs> kilograms. I know,
2: totally. So my recommendation is generally a flat dose of two thousand international units. Okay. Again, kind of similar to warfarin as if you didn't know an INR. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So can I I mean I don't I think this is maybe beyond the scope of the, the talk, but if you have someone who's bleeding, they're obviously on these anticoagulants for a reason. Yeah. Now we've stopped the acute phase of their bleeding, yeah. but then do we have to say to them, okay, well, you still have those risks, right. and we now need you to put still you have back AFib. on. You yeah, still put, and we need to put, so yeah. is there a time frame when we start to say, okay, now you've stopped bleeding, now you're subtherapeutic, perhaps, yeah. and now when do we get you back up?
2: Million dollar question. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> Frankly, uh, nothing, there's not a lot of great literature out there yeah. on it. And a lot of it is depending on how bad the bleed is, how bad the clot was, how recent the clot was. Right. You know, these types of questions. And I have to admit, these are the things that even hematologists struggle. Yeah. So I can only imagine for frontline physicians, it's nearly impossible to make this decision, right? Yeah. So, first of all, I would say those situations uh, get a specialist involved if you can, right. right? Right. Yeah. The second thing in general I would say is it's okay to hold off being on, on an anticoagulant for a little while because, mm-hmm. um, you know, your cumulative risk of thrombosis, you know, for the days that you're off blood, uh, right. your blood thinner is, is not uh, generally that bad. But I think what people do as a bit of a mistake sometimes is that uh, people have a serious bleed, mm-hmm. and they think they can never be on an anticoagulant ever again. Right. Right. that is also the wrong strategy yes. to take. Um, but yeah. as far as what specific time frame, yeah, nothing out there really greats to phone to, to kind of look at it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I guess the other question is um, that some people will ask is when should they stop their anticoagulants before a procedure?
2: Great question. So that largely, uh, first of all, follow the direction of your physician. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> disclaimer. Yeah, yes. Disclaimer. disclaimer. Please uh, ask
1: the doc. Um,
2: yeah. uh, essentially, uh, the place I generally point people towards uh, those types of questions is mm-hmm. Thrombosis Canada. They have yeah. a great set of guidelines uh, in terms of when to stop your uh, your DOAC. Yeah. Um, generally, though, I would probably say that uh, it depends on your uh, creatinine clearance because right. many of these drugs are are, are kidney, renally yeah. excreted and then based off of that if you have good kidney function uh, i believe most surgeries are generally safe after about two two to three days of holding it okay if you have bad kidney function generally that extends out to i believe four and five days wow yeah all right
1: that's quite interesting you know because i think that's where people struggle a little bit more. Like now, I think here in Emerge we're very like, okay, we got this, but then you know then we're like stuck with oh, okay or we have people who come into emerge who say my RNR is like very elevated and yep. then I'm sitting there going well I don't know how much do I decrease here maybe we we'll stop it for a couple of days and we'll recheck it and then see where you're at yep. so I think that that's uh, certainly helpful thrombosis Canada thank you so was there anything are we almost there yeah
2: uh, just a couple things so yeah. uh, one other interesting point about when is it safe to do procedures and things like yeah. that my understanding is there's a research clinical trial that uh, I think is going to be published uh, I think called the pause trial okay uh, which essentially looked at the safety of doing procedures if you know a drug level for oh, okay. the uh, anti-tenant inhibitors really okay? and actually that's a probably a good segue because I don't think I talked a little bit about how to test for anti-tenant inhibitors yeah. uh, so I'll just finish off with that piece uh, so that study is coming along and will provide some guidance for centers that can do the testing right in general if you're uh, on a pixaban right uh, essentially your none of the tests are really that useful your conventional tests uh, your best test if you can get it is an anti 10 level so that's used for heparin typically okay. okay if you have hep, if you do this level mm-hmm. and the drug is uh, or the test is positive your drug is present if it's absent generally your drug is absent uh, the these anti a levels are typically calibrated towards specific drugs. So if you order anti tenin a level, normally it's gonna be calibrated towards heparin, right, because right? that's what people use it for. But you can calibrate towards these specific drugs. Mm-hmm. If you can't get a calibrated level, a level calibrated to heparin is still way better than tests than nothing, than or your nothing. conventional yeah. tests.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: At doxaban and rivaroxaban, your PT and INR is potentially a little bit helpful. So if it's prolonged, it tells you most certainly the drug is probably present. Okay. If it's normal, then you're kinda of down your anti-10A levels and your anti-10A levels are gonna be your best test. Again, right. anti-10A level, if it's high, drug is present. If it's normal, then it's not.
1: And so is it more done for to ensure that we're in a the therapeutic level, or do you think?
2: You, and this is the interesting piece. So uh, how I mentioned for when you treat a bleed, yeah. uh, you know, do the action, you know, worry about the testing later, yeah. especially in DOAX, because, you know, uh, DOAC levels are really hard to interpret because we don't really know clinically yeah. what is a good range to keep people in. Um, you know, my understanding is that PAUS study is probably one of the first studies to actually give some clinical guidance on what to do with a level. Yeah. Uh, I think if you were to show most hematologists like a drug level for a DOAC, people really wouldn't know what to do with do it. With it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a yeah. number. Yeah. It's a number. It's, the yeah. it's a number, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. It only tells you probably if it's high, it's present, yeah. it's normal, Probably not, but what is the proper therapeutic range? And also, uh, my understanding is, you know, there are commercial kits out there, but again, calibrations are different, methodologies are different, right? People have different in-house assays, all that stuff. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I think it would be interesting because I think before we started the podcast, Andrew and Landon and I were talking about doing a test that actually is meaningful to your clinical practice and not just doing a test. Um, to have a number. So it will be interesting to know in future if yeah. it's going to be a test that helps us with some therapeutic level or what does the patient look like, right? Like, what totally. am I going to do there? Yeah. Anything Excellent. that, any three things you want them to say? And then we'll say maybe some Why don't of our Did stuff. you
0: have anything else? Or I didn't should, have anything else, oh, I don't think. think. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I, have, I, I have two things. Yeah, and
1: it probably is the same as mine. Yeah. Uh,
0: I, one is fibrinogen. Yeah. I don't like think I've ever, t- ever ordered a fibrinogen. fibrinogen
1: level. Yeah.
0: Like, I maybe in some weird admission orders, it's one of the things that I robot check the computer thing. Yeah. But as far as someone coming in is super sick, which yeah. where we work, the, the nurses initiate a that lot blood, of the blood work. Test. The yeah. physicians are focused on other things. Uh, you know, I definitely do group and screen PTT, INR, just as as uh, usual things. Yeah. But, but I've never.
1: Ordered a fibrinogen. Ordered a fibrinogen. Yeah, so that would probably be
0: something I would start to think about. Yeah. Um, the second one was about PCC. PCC, I knew
1: yeah. you were going to
0: say that. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, that that's uh, uh, easily, well, more easily available than, say, fresh frozen plasma. Because yeah. I do yeah. know that plasma comes up when we teach around the province. Like, well, all we have is, you know, four units of packed cells and no plasma and no platelets. And
1: mm-hmm. we,
0: there's an opportunity now for us to go and go, mm-hmm. you might have... PCC. Yeah. Because before I would have thought, well, if you don't have yeah. plasma, you obviously don't have the super expensive secondary thing. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> PCC uh, PCC but yeah. But actually they might be more likely to have Correct. the powder. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. The, so and that's that's my second thing. I only have two.
1: Yeah. But the patient population that you're going to see, not just in an uh, urban site, is a lot of these folks are in rural sites taking their medications well, yeah. and stuff. So And they will turn up at a walking Uh, or a standalone little clinic Mm -hmm. or something like that so it's so helpful to know it's in a powder it doesn't need to be in a big blood bank you know and then it's a question to ask at least like you know
0: if if you're working with a physician who says well this person really needs plasma and we're in a rural site we need to work Mm -hmm. on transfer
1: yeah
0: you know maybe some of our listeners nurses will go we should ask if yeah we carry this here Yeah. yeah
1: absolutely because yeah some
0: small sites they might know what they have but our my experience anyway is most like, There's so much to know as a rural practitioner. The amount of what products they have in their yes. blood bank is, usually the answer we get is, we don't have much.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't know the
0: exact this and yeah, that. They, they, don't know don't they know they maybe that. have some O negative or O positive blood, but they're like, and really we don't have much else. Yeah. But this is a, one of those questions. We might actually have this. So yeah. that's, that's my two learnings.
1: I think one of the you things
0: you have to come that, up with a different
1: one. I know. I think for <laughs> me, it really is about asking a friend, having the resources that are available. So I love that there's this treatthebleed.org, but also the other ones that you've given us, like thrombosis. Canada, uh, Canada yep. uh, Bloody Easy, that people can kind of refer to um, when they're having a difficult time trying to wrap their brain about what do I do right now? I need mm-hmm. just some, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do. And I think the other thing for me that resonated really is that if it's heparin and they're bleeding and it's a severe bleed, give the vitamin K, think about PCC, and then with the with the DOAX, know what your antidotes are, right. and with the um, the rivaroxaban one, the 10A yeah. um, one, yeah. that you can still just give the PCC, yeah. right, and then look at definitive treatment of the bleed, yeah. and then the other group, the
2: uh, direct, thrombin, direct inhibitors?
1: thrombin inhibitors, there is an antidote, Correct. Yeah, that's just right. understanding those things. So for me, those that, two That things is important, because
0: I know, you know, when they first came out, and I don't remember how many years ago. I want to say like five or six years ago. These were sort of the new drugs. Yeah. The thing was, well, these are new drugs. They're really good. But there's no reversal agent. There's no antidote. And that's scary and blah, blah, blah. And I'd say unless you actually went back and looked to see did we progress, there's probably a big thinking out there, definitely Mm -hmm. amongst nurses who aren't ordering this and don't necessarily need to keep that on top of these drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Of, like, well, those are the scary ones with no antidote, and we've basically heard now, no, everything that's out there has something you can do, Do, maybe no direct antidote, but yeah. But when they first came out, it was like, well, man, if they come in on that and they're bleeding, they just bleed, exactly. And so now we're hearing that's not the case, there is an antidote to everything, so that kind of reversal procedure or a chemical for everything, it may not be a direct antidote, exactly.
1: So for me, it's the reversal, then treat the bleed. And then really consider what do we do after that for a long-term management because they were on anticoagulants for a reason. And then having, you know, calling a friend to say, what do we do about that in the long term? So those are the things I
2: thought about. Yeah. What
1: about you? What do you want us to remember? So
2: a couple things. Actually, the first thing I wanted to just uh, touch upon is this... uh, you know, I know I don't know if this still persists a lot a lot, but I remember when the, the doax first came out, mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of hand wringing over, you know, if we don't have an anti, why would I start my patient on this, right? Yeah. And I think the the studies are very conclusive nowadays, basically showing that if doax and uh, warfarin at least have the same efficacy, and actually probably from an overall safety profile, doax are probably better. Yes, less. exactly. And you have to keep in mind those studies compared when they compared to warfarin, uh, those patients on warfarin were under the auspices of like uh, of well done studies, yeah. so they were having their ironers checked very often, which is we know that doesn't necessarily happen in the community yeah, right right exactly. uh, so I mean. You know, just to reassure people, yes, there are things you can do for these DOACs now. And yeah. just the fact that even though you didn't have specific antidotes for them, they're still probably overall the better drug. Better drug. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, big take home messages I, I want people to take home from this. First of all, again, if you're reversing warfarin, is large doses of vitamin K given IV plus yeah. PCCs. Yes. Right? Especially for life threatening bleeds, you got to give both at the same time. Okay. Um, the second thing related to that is, Frozen plasma is not appropriate for reversal of yes. warfarin <laughs> uh, unless you have this very specific circumstance of, of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And I say this, uh, you know, we kind of laugh about it here, but you know, uh, I did an audit back in one of my old hospitals, uh, maybe about four or five years ago, and we still found even around that era, you know, people were mostly still using warfarin uh, or sorry plasma to reverse warfarin. And this is when PCCs were very well okay. established already. Isn't that uh, interesting? And this is in a large tertiary academic center, wow. right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, always have to remind people of that. In regards to the DOACs, um, again, PCCs are the best thing we can give for anti-10A inhibitors for now. For the dabigatran, you've got a specific antidote through pharmacy, right. uh, and then probably I would say in most cases testing is not all that useful yeah. in DOAC-associated bleeds. And then find the last piece, as you guys have kind of hit on, no matter what you do in terms of antidotes, reversals, chemicals you give, uh, you always have to do something definitive to stop the bleed.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Perfect. Gosh, very so much.
0: And the website
1: is, is treatthebleed.org.
0: Yes. And actually,
1: we have done uh, a few talks that might. If you wanted to review the clotting cascade, we did that We've as well. We've done the clotting cascade. We have, yeah. So different ones, and we did do one ones. on Doax yes. as well. So uh, thank you very much for adding to our uh, library of, of hematological, uh,
0: hematological podcasts. Pod- exactly.
1: <laughs> thank you very much, Andrew. And we yes. will talk to you guys next month.
0: Any final? No. Podcasts? Thanks for having me
2: again. All right. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. For past episodes and to comment on this episode. Please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at nursem Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, Before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.